Just a quick reminder, make sure that you tune in and join us here next week on the 1st of March. We're going to be running a special giveaway to celebrate our 100th episode of the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. An entry is for one day only, so get yourself ready by subscribing and hitting that bell icon. Now, last year, we launched a brand new series of podcast episodes focusing on choosing the best vocal exercises in given scenarios. That continues, but today we are kicking off a new series, Ask Me Anything, where you, the listener, can pose your questions to our founder and voice expert, Lynn Hilton. Let's get into it. Lynn Hilton, we have a bunch of really great questions here that were shared on our Facebook page, our Singing Teachers community. So we thought that we could pose them to you right now to answer because we thought they'd be great to share with our listeners as well. So we've got question number one here from Rose Kimberly, who says that she needs a bit of advice and an opinion about a cancellation situation. She says, I squeezed in a regular student, a 17 year old who booked directly with me on a day I don't normally teach before I went to work in a theater that evening. I confirmed it on the day a couple of hours before. He then forgot. My feeling is he still needs to pay, but the dad emailed me this morning saying, not sure the maybe lesson thing is going to work. Guess I need to know a day before to ensure it happens. It wasn't a maybe lesson, it was confirmed, but hey, he knows my cancellation policy is 24 hours, but I'm worried it's a bit of a gray area because I confirmed it on the day. Has anyone had any similar experiences and thoughts are appreciated on how to handle this one? Mm. Yeah, so obviously a little bit complicated there because the client or the paying person paying is not the actual student. Yeah, so I think the first thing is obviously, and Rosie has already done that, is to make sure that she has a clear cancellation policy. And I think some teachers, you know, don't think about making sure that they've got some sort of policy in place and that everybody's aware of it, you know, when they right from the beginning of starting their lessons. So, you know, big tick there to Rose. Um, so once that policy is in place, that's like a it's a legal document. It's an agreement that, you know, they've made. And so you can feel very, you know, confident and justified that you're going to need to get paid. Uh, and I think a lot of us have um, confidence issues around money and talking about money, but we need to overcome them because at the end of the day, you know, if you go to Sainsbury's and you feel like you don't want to pay the same amount as you know you're being charged you know that there's no argument about it that's a set price and you either pay it or you don't take that item and I think it's very similar is that we're providing a service uh, or a product which is the singing lesson and it's an agreement that's been made by the the student or the client and yourself and so you do need to get paid the grey area, of course, is the fact that in this instance, the student, um, a 17 year old boy, so we all know teenage boys, <laughs> their brains not necessarily, uh, well, it's still fun forming really at the end of the day, just to be polite. I guess it's a, maybe a lesson learned here for Rose that she needs to think about making a policy that it has to be booked from the person who's paying. Uh, so that's all clear. And um, the other option, of course, is to 
say, well, I have to suck it up really. You know, I made a bit of a mistake there by letting the um, the teenager make the booking and I should have just said no, given that it wasn't one of my teaching days. And, you know, it just means that next time I'll, I'll know better. Another policy that I have is, and it took a while for me to instill this policy, a lot of non-payments, uh, is that if someone hasn't paid for a lesson and you're in your rights to expect payment, that you don't book any more lessons in until that payment's been made. You're not saying I'm never going to teach you again. It's just actually I need to get paid for that time that I put aside uh, sitting around waiting for you. And um, just like, you know, if a dent you booked a dentist and you didn't turn up, you'd still be expected to pay the dentist. So that would be another way to help protect yourself. How long would you say is a good amount for a cancellation policy? I personally have a 24 hour cancellation policy, but I know people who have 48, I know even a couple of people who've got one week cancellation policies, but these are people who are fully booked or, you know, quite ahead of time. So um, there's, you know, a demand and it, and I think it just depends on what you, what you prefer. But I think 24 hours is generally the accepted and um, preferred time span. When can we take it upon ourselves to waive that policy, even though it might be to the detriment of our bank account? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of options here. You could say, you know what, um, if you've got to cancel within 24 hours and you've had someone who's a reliable student, um, you could say, you know, if you book your lesson in the next seven days, I'll honour, you know, that payment and not charge you for this one. If you've got someone who's not so reliable, then obviously making sure you get paid before you continue. Um, if somebody's, you know, if there's been a death in the family or, you know, they had an accident or something, you know, unexpected and, and serious has happened, of course, you know, I think we need to be compassionate as well. And we would like to think that people would be like that for us as well. Um, I think it has to be a very personal decision. You know your students and you know the ones that are taking advantage and the ones that, you know, genuinely have an issue. I mean, I've definitely been in a situation where I've not charged someone who's come down with a cold that day, even though I could have. Um, I just feel, well, that's a little bit unfair because we don't know about the cold until it arrives. And, of course, I don't want the cold, <laughs> so I don't want them to turn up to the lesson. And also, of course, for their sake, you know, we want to make sure that we're keeping them safe. In your experience, what's the best or most optimal setup for a booking system so that we get paid as the booking is made? My booking system is you pay for if you're all new, you pay up front. And that was another harsh lesson <laughs> sitting around, you know, fiddling my thumbs doing some of my own, well, you know, I used to put it to good use, so I'd do my own vocal work, workout. But, uh, yeah, waiting around for somebody new um, who just didn't turn up. And it seems to happen a lot more for new students. So I have an upfront payment policy. The other one is having a sort of package, you know, paying upfront. And then another option I had was um, I would have people paying me I'd, I'd figure out how many lessons or we together we'd figure out how many lessons they were going to have in the year and then I'd divide the payment up over 12 months and then I just got paid by direct debit is it or standing order 
um, every month. And that's actually a really good way to have, um, you know, much more positive uh, cash flow. Uh, or people would do packages. And of course, when you pay packages, or if you did the standing order, there was a discount. Um, so that was an incentive for somebody to pay up front, um, or in a way that was, you know, consistent, and you didn't have to chase up. Yeah, so those those could work, uh, depending on your situation. When would you advise that we seek the help of a debt collector if we are continuing to book somebody in or we've brought that to a stop but they still owe quite a bit of money? Yeah, I've had to do that twice. <laughs> Once again, my fault. Uh, so um, I had two clients that had been brought to me via managers and the managers were supposed to be paying for the lessons. And so I just kept seeing the clients, even though I wasn't getting paid, and so accrued quite large amounts of, um, of money owing in the thousands. And that's when I went to a debt collector. And I think every debt collector is different. Um, it probably does need to be in the several hundreds or, you know, into the thousands for a debt collector to make it worth their while. Um, because it, it's a... From what I understand, because I had a friend who used to work in a debt collection company and it's very time consuming and, you know, you have to have manpower to do it and um, to be to do it right and consistently. And there's quite a lot of research that they do as well, you know, to find out more about the person. So, yeah, that probably if you're owed that much, my uh, advice, though, is just not to get into that situation, um, you know, avoid that by all costs, because it's like one of them I got paid and the other one I didn't. So I lost like £1,500, which was a lot of money. I mean, it still is today, but it was definitely a lot of money when that happened. And I was, um, you know, it's put in a lot of time with this um, artist. And it wasn't his fault, um, you know, because the deal was with the manager. So making sure, and it can be really difficult when you're working with, the payment is coming from a third party. So the other time when it can be problematic is when you're working with labels. And, you know, there's some really big labels that I've worked with um, that I've struggled to get payment from over the years, you know, because they have some sort of payment system that never seems to work and you can never find the right person to talk to. And I'm not the only person that's had that experience, you know, other people who do freelance work for some of these labels have the same thing. I, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up thinking, you know what, I don't want to work with those kind of artists because I just don't want the hassle and the stress of trying to get paid. Um, not all of them were like that. There were many that were paid on time and, and you know, uh, and, and didn't have, you know, any problems paying. But when it's a problem, it's a problem. I had another artist I chased for a year for payment. It's a long time and it's a lot of effort and and so... Yeah, I, I, I think you have to decide what's right for you. Um, and having a good record, you know, system, recording it so that you're on top of it. Uh, that was another thing that I had to learn along the way was, you know, if you don't look after your money, no one else is. <laughs> and so making sure you've got some sort of bookkeeping process and invoicing process where you can keep a record. Because the other thing is that occasionally, a, um, a singer might actually want to have a record, um, a receipt of all the lessons that they've had because they can um, deduct that, you know, it's a taxable, tax deductible item. 
So making sure that you can pull up very quickly all of that information. And there's a lot of good bookkeeping um, platforms out there. I, I use Xero, um, but then, you know, that's because of the business that I have. There are other ones that are more suitable for um, self-employed coaches or, you know, teachers or, you know, that, that sort of job. Actually, talking about getting paid, um, uh, we talked about that earlier. Another way to do it is to go through a booking system where the person pays when they book the lesson. So that, that could work as well. And there's a record, you know, and the booking system can actually issue invoices, you know, as, as well as receipts. So those kind of things can help organise you and protect you and maintain your records and ensure that you're getting paid in a timely manner. I also have a um, something on my invoices. I can't, I can't remember the exact um, percentage, but I say if the, you know, if the invoice has to be paid within a certain amount of time, so I think it's seven days, and then for any period after that, um, you get a certain percentage of um, added a fee and it's it's a government set um, um, penalty fee you know that you can ask for anybody who is not paying you in within the time that you've set and you can decide I mean you can say on your invoice you have to pay it as soon as you get the invoice four days seven days you know 30 days it very much depends on your business um, you know so some businesses it's going to be inappropriate to say pay immediately you know it's usually it might be a 30-day um payment requirement but i think for what we're doing seven days is quite reasonable um yeah so i'll i can't remember i'm pretty sure it'll be on the government uh, website uh with regards to pay asking for payments and charging for overdue fees um and you can just copy and paste that wording into your invoice and it gives you a well it just gives you a recourse doesn't it if if something goes wrong you can say well it's on the invoice you know it's it's a normal standard charge da, da, da. I've never had to do that but um it's there if I needed it where would you say we need to display our cancellation policy to communicate that to our potential students so I have it on my intake form and they tick a box saying that they agree to the cancellation policy. It's the same with any product or service um, course or whatever I sell. There's always somewhere in, in the form a tick box that says you agree to the cancellation um, policy. And in that policy, it also talks about what happens if I cancel, you know, so what can you expect if I cancel? Um, so that's the most obvious place. And of course, if they tick it, that's once again you can show that to them if there's any questions about it and say but hang on a minute you know you agree to this cancellation policy it's nothing new i also have it uh, under my um, email signature just a, a line that says uh, 24 cancellation required or you know if you don't i can't remember exactly what it says but it's that kind of wording of you know you will be charged the full fee if you don't cancel within 24 hours um when i was working in my studio in London, I had a notice on the uh, on the piano where they stood in front. So when they're doing the lip trills, they could read it. <laughs> uh, so I think that's probably enough. And on your website, of course, you should have any terms and conditions, privacy policy, cancellation policy, that should be on your business website as well. On to question two, this comes from Gia, who says, 
She has a quick question regarding new singers getting voice training. She says, I'm noticing several of my students over the last couple of years notice a slight ache on the side of their vocal cords. She mentions that this is the area each side as if you're giving yourself a laryngeal massage. And they're noticing this after the first and or second lesson into training. She says, I assume this is a mix between lifestyle, voice use and just using the muscles more than they ever have before. A bit like working your muscles at the gym after having a long break. Has anyone else experienced this with over 25 year old singers? Is this common for you to hear and perhaps with certain students or certain voices? Mm, that's interesting. Uh, so I'm wondering whether Gia means um, the larynx. So rather than the vocal folds, because the vocal folds themselves don't have any sensory nerve endings. So any aches or pains that we might feel around there will be muscular. Uh, sorry, will be um, extrinsic muscular. So um, there's a few questions I would want to ask. First of all, how are things set up in the studio? Is, is there, you know, are they standing in front of her? Are they directly in front on the side? Are they having to turn? Uh, are they sitting or standing? So I'd be definitely looking at postural things. Uh, and also, I don't disagree with the idea that, you know, quite often people who've never sung before and then have to put those muscles into action will end up getting aches. And we want to make sure that that's not getting worse, it's definitely getting better. But there's a few things that we can do to potentially mitigate that. Um, so watching out to see if maybe their larynx is coming up during the process of singing, because if it is, it might be that there's some, you know, muscle tension creeping in there with the supra and infrahyoids or all those muscles that sit extrinsic to the larynx um, because they're kind of, you know, they don't know quite what to do and tension creeps in and then there's a conflict and so that can bring an ache. But we can mitigate this by, well, first of all, making sure that we're not pushing the voice too high, too long, having regular breaks. So it's okay to just stop and ask, you know, how you're feeling, reset the larynx if you need to with a little, uh, uh, or massage, the student can do self-massage. You can just show them how to do a little bit of um, massaging the, the larynx area. Also, you might do some shoulder rolls or arms up or chin down while they're doing the exercise because when your chin is down towards your chest, those muscles cannot contract. So um, if, if we think that that's one of the problems, you might do an exercise where actually we drop the chin as we go up through the scale and come back up again. I don't know if the age thing has any correlation or if that just is a coincidence, uh, but I do wonder about things like uh, technique. <laughs> you know, the using a lot of people nowadays have neck and throat problems and shoulder problems because of the way we're using technology. We're standing at the computer with our heads sort of jutting forward. Um, we're, you know, leaning over, jutting forward with, with devices as we're looking. And so those things might be contributing as well, uh, along with the fact that, you know, someone's trying to learn a new muscle, motor muscle um, skill. Yeah, so um, I definitely want to see that that was decreasing over the weeks. Um, but there's some things that Gia could be giving her students to do to counteract it as well. Can we ever really know what muscle is the culprit? 
Uh, well, maybe somebody who works in that area, like a laryngeal masseuse or someone who's really cluey with the anatomy of their uh, throat might be able to identify exactly which muscle it is. Some of those muscles are quite deep. So, you know, it depends on whether you can actually palpate that muscle. Um, at the most extreme <laughs> level, you'd have to insert a needle and get an EMG to find out if there was, you know, muscle contraction. But I can't imagine that there'd be many uh, situations where that would be necessary. Um, yeah, so I think it gets a little difficult because there's so many different muscles there um, in the throat area. And th there's the, the big one that sort of lays over the top and then there's the uh, ones that are sort of going from the skull down to the collarbone and then underneath there's ones that go from the hyoid bone into the thyroid cartilage and then the ones that go from the thyroid cartilage into the cricoid cartilage and you know there's there's lots and there's ones you know that go from the tongue to the hyoid and so um the infra and um suprahyoids i think you know there's eight of those already and a lot of them are paired as well so you've got one on each side uh yeah so i think probably as a singing teacher it's unless this is your area of expertise and you've really done a lot of study it's probably unlikely you'll be able to identify exactly which muscle and even if you did what would you be able to do about it and you mentioned before about the age and also new singers and how that can sometimes be a good environment for them to work too hard or track the larynx with pitch how can we bring the singer into a sense of self-awareness We've mentioned the movement, but what else can we do to allow them to realise that they don't actually have to work as hard? Mm. Well, a very simple one that um, I teach people is if you just put the flat of your fingers over the front of your throat and then you get the student to be aware, you know, there's some lumps there, some are bigger than others. And if you swallow, those lumps will go up and then come back down. And if you yawn, they'll go down. And if you're just talking normally, they're probably sitting fairly neutral. So you're starting to give the students some self-awareness about the larynx moves up and down and there are muscles that do that job. And so as you sing, um, it's often common for the larynx to want to track up with the pitch. So we're going to see if we can actually stop that from happening, not, not through tension, but through just awareness. It might be imagining that you're about to start a yawn as you go up higher or that you put on a, a voice like a dopey Homer Simpson type of voice and so that your larynx is in that more imposed position. So the student starts to get used to the idea of the larynx doesn't have to go up as the pitch goes more to the right of the keyboard. I was just thinking about Kaya because she never talks about high pitch, low pitch. It's always sort of to the right or to the left. Um, yeah, so maybe and and that's the other reason why you know doing things like dropping the chin of course there's the physiological constraint of not being able to contract those muscles in that position but also mentally it's thinking down rather than thinking up uh so i think that's probably the simplest and the most direct way of helping a student become aware and after a while they can, they can start to get used to what it sounds like when the larynx goes up. So it sounds strained, it might be pushed, it might sound yelly or shouty, their voice might crack, their pitch might go flat, and um, they, they'll feel tension. And so they start to then 
find other ways of monitoring if that's what's happening with their larynx as well as the the, the physical aspect so as well as you know monitoring uh, what's happening with the larynx and 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 factoring some breaks in and so so that you know the voice isn't singing constantly throughout the lesson because it's not used to it um, you can also teach uh, the students some self-massage um, and there's some videos around about that. I'm not going to, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but it's there's you won't do any harm to yourself doing that. Um, and then the other thing I would say to teachers is slow down the exercise so that the singer has time to think and feel where things are sitting and what they should be thinking about and focusing on um, rather than just rushing through the exercises. Great. Well, as always, Lynn, thank you so much for your expertise. Well, you're welcome. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I'm sure you could have come up with a whole bunch of things as well, uh, but it's really lovely to chat to you as always. And I look forward to our next little questions. If you have any questions that you would like answered, you can head to our Facebook page to post them there at Singing Teachers Community. Or why not email us at info at or alexa at basstraining.com. Party hats at the ready because in a week we will be celebrating our 100th episode. So listeners, remember to tune in same time, same place for your chance to win our giveaway worth over a thousand pounds. Until next time, Lynn. <laughs>